Jeremiah chapter 20 is our text for tonight. So let's turn there. I don't know about you, but with all these winds and dust and things flying around, it makes it harder, a little bit harder to breathe than normal. So if you see me doing one of these, you'll know that I'm really trying to get some air to, just to make uh, finish a sentence, maybe. <laughs> Jeremiah chapter 20, verses 1 through 4. Let me read that, and then we'll get right into our study for the whole chapter. Jeremiah 20, verse 1. Now, Pashur, the son of Emer, the priest who was also chief governor in the house of the Lord, heard that Jeremiah prophesied these things. Now let me stop there just to remind you that what Jeremiah had been prophesying was the fact that Judah now was beyond repair, beyond help. He had shown them a flask that he had broken in their presence to show them that this was, this was going to happen to them, uh, that they were going to feel this, the strength of, uh, of Babylon's uh, destruction. And so this he prophesied not only to the elders and the uh, priests, but uh, then went to the temple to, to, to prophesy this to the people. So because of this, notice verse 2, Then Pashur struck Jeremiah the prophet and put him in the stocks that were in the high gate of Benjamin, which was by the house of the Lord. And it happened on the next day that Pashur brought Jeremiah out of the stocks. And then Jeremiah said to him, The Lord has not called your name Pashur, but Magor Misabib. For thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will make you a terror to yourself and to all your friends. And they shall fall by the sword of their enemies, and your eyes shall see it. I will give all Judah into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall carry them captive to Babylon and slay them with a sword. Now here's, here's the question. Or actually a question that, that, that you really have to think about. And I want you to think about it. Have you ever experienced a time in your life when you were confused and angry at God? And then, even if but for a short time, just stop believing in Him. You just stop believing because you were angry at God. Think about it. Because I would have to say that at some point in time, most of us, if not all of us, have for some reason been angry at God. And have wanted to say to Him, you know, I'm, I'm tired of this. I'm checking out. You know, I've spoken to a lot of people who have expressed anger toward God over something, but, but very few ever say that they no longer believe He existed. Now, I have to say that I remember hearing Chuck Smith, Pastor Chuck from Costa Mesa, California, say in a teaching that he said, he said for four hours he had become an atheist. For four hours. And that, I believe, over some unresolved issue between him and the Lord. It was just something that, that didn't happen the way he felt it needed to happen or something. And he said, you know, at that point in time, he went to the library and he said, I just didn't believe in God for four hours. 
And I think he went on to say that he just felt so silly at the end of that time because he realized, how can I not believe in God? And I believe that God has the best interest in mind for me. And the point is that, that there are times that, that we may think that the Lord has gone back on His Word or, or a promise that we believe that He made to us and, and our initial response is anger or, uh, and then some sort of detachment from Him, you see. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad for God's faithfulness? And aren't you glad for God's patience toward us in matters like these? I mean, I am so glad that God is patient when we act that way. I've said this before. If I was God, man, I'd wipe you out. Actually, I shouldn't put it in those terms. If I was God, I'd wipe me out. (laughs) I think sometimes we get that to that point. But God is faithful. And if he wasn't faithful to his word, and if he wasn't patient with us, where would we be right now? Where would we be? I think of Deuteronomy 7, verse 9, where, where it says, Therefore know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, you see. He's the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for, for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. I'd say it's important to love him and keep his commandments, don't you? If he's going to be faithful to us. In Hosea chapter 11, verse 12, it says, Ephraim has encircled me with lies, and the house of Israel, Israel would deceive, but Judah still walks with God, even with the Holy One who is faithful. I read that just to get to that last point where it says the Holy One who is faithful. God just says, I'm faithful to you. Psalm 36, verse 5, David says, Your mercy, O Lord, is in the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Oh, to always remember how faithful God is. And then Lamentations 3, verses 22 and 23, though through, I should say, through the Lord's mercies, we're not consumed because His compassions fail not. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. We get that great hymn, Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not, thy compassions they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. You see, Jeremiah believed in God. Jeremiah trusted in the Lord's faithfulness. He feared the Lord in reverence and awe. But Jeremiah also felt that he could come straight away before God. In other words, immediately before God. With his heart's deepest complaints. You know, it's in this chapter that we find the fifth of of Jeremiah's five complaints before the Lord. We'll get to those in just a minute. And it is in response to the beating and detaining that he received from the hand of the chief officer in charge of law and order in the temple. This guy we just read about named Pashur. It says there in verses 1 and 2, Now Pashur, the son of Emer, the priest who was also chief governor in the house of the Lord, heard that Jeremiah prophesied these things. I mentioned what they were from the previous chapter. Then Pashur struck Jeremiah the prophet. Now let me just include to that thought that he may have struck him, and I believe that he probably struck him himself. 
But uh, there's, there's an understanding here that when he, they took him to the stocks, they also gave him 40 lashes as well. That was just the common practice, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But it says they put him in the stocks that were in the high gate of Benjamin, which was by the house of the Lord. So it is here that we see the response to Jeremiah's action sermon, the sermon that we talked about earlier, where he took a flask from the potter's house and, and before the priests and the elders and declared uh, and declared impending disaster on Judah for having forsaken their God and worshipped idols, performing all manner of abominable acts, finally crushing the flask as a, as a sign of Judah being beyond repair. He then repeated the sermon in the temple before the people, so more people heard the sermon. And so Pashur, the chief security officer for the temple, arrested Jeremiah and had him beaten and scourged, according to Deuteronomy 25, verse 3. You know, it's interesting, when people don't want to believe God anymore, they'll only believe the things that they want. And this is what he believed. Well, according to the law, we ought to punish him. And according to Deuteronomy 25, verse 3, it says, 40 blows he may give him and no more lest he should exceed this and beat him with many blows above these, and your brother be humiliated in your sight. He then had Jeremiah put in stocks at the northern part of the inner courtyard, where he could be seen by the population entering into the temple. So many people then would be able to see Jeremiah in these stocks. And from, from what I understand, the stocks that they had him in seemed to have put him in a, in a position where he was doubled over because his feet were in bonds and stocks and his hands were, and he was doubled over in a, in a, a very funny position. Uh, well, not funny, haha, but funny, you know, to us, I mean, kind of weird position. And, and this was all for humiliation. It was to humiliate him before the people. That was the intent of this officer upon God's prophet. And what we have here is the first recorded physical abuse of the prophet Jeremiah with more abuse to follow. And he would have to realize that it was going to be coming even after this. I think there's a picture here for the church to take notice of. For a good amount of time we get the opportunity to tell people about Jesus Christ, to go out and into all the world and, and, and you know, this church as well as many Calvary chapels and many other churches as well gone all around the world to take the word of God to, to many different people. And sometimes people are friendly and sometimes they're not, but uh, they, they've never challenged us to the point of, 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 of uh, you know, uh, putting our lives in, in, in great jeopardy. And yet to this day, from the day that the church was born to this day, people have died for their faith in Jesus Christ. But because of the days and times in which we live, things are getting worse and worse, harder and harder, more difficult for believers in Jesus Christ anywhere in the world, even in, even in our country, to be able to stand for the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So as Jeremiah's ministry continued to grow, even though he had the blessing of God, he was going to face troubles and trials. And this is part of the dilemma that Jeremiah finds himself in here. So you'll notice in verses 3 through 6, it says, And it happened on the next day that Pashur brought Jeremiah out of the stocks. Notice the next day. He was only in stocks one day. And then Jeremiah said to him, The Lord has not called your name Pashur, but Magor Misabib. For this saith the Lord, Behold, I will make you a terror to yourself and to all your friends, and they shall fall by the sword of, of their enemies, and your eyes shall see it. 
I will give all Judah into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall carry them captive to Babylon and slay them with a sword. Moreover, I will deliver all the wealth of the city, all its produce, and all its precious things. All the treasures of the king of Judah I will give into the hand of their enemies, who will plunder them, seize them, and carry them to Babylon. And you, Pashur, and all who dwell in your house shall go into captivity. You shall go to Babylon, and there you shall die, and be buried there, you and all your friends, to whom you have prophesied lies. So he's saying to Pashur, your name isn't Pashur anymore, as far as God is concerned. He has named you uh, this name, Magor, uh, Magor Misabib, which literally means terror on every side. He has become a terror on every side by what he did to the prophet, but in effect, what he did in lying to the people with false prophecies. One of many false prophets, as we know. The other thing to note is, here in all of, the, in all of what, uh, what uh, Jeremiah was saying to Peshur, is that he says, you're going to go to Babylon, you're going to die there. Which was actually going to be a humiliation upon himself and upon his family, because it was a, a shame to die anywhere outside of Israel and not be buried in Israel. Not be buried in your homeland. To be buried in captivity was a shame. So Jeremiah's confinement, as I said, only lasted one day. For sure, probably thinking that he had certainly silenced the prophet for good. They beat him, put him in stocks, said, you know, this ought to be enough. Learn your lesson. But to his dismay, the prophet confronts the security chief with a message of judgment specifically for him. The Lord has a new name for you, Peshur. No longer are you, Peshur. You are now this Magor Misabib, terror on every side. And as he had been a terror to Jeremiah, so Peshur and his family and friends would be surrounded by terror. Judgment would soon fall upon them, for the Lord was raising up Babylon to carry out his judgment against Judah. And because Peshur refused to heed God's message he would see the outpouring of God's judgment. Now this wasn't going to happen simply because he had beaten Jeremiah. Jeremiah knew that, so it wasn't as if he was saying this vengefully. Most importantly, this judgment would come upon Pashur because he prophesied lies to the people, as it says in verse 6. Now Warren Wiersbe writes this, he says they'd been preaching lies in the name of God, in the name of the God of truth, and had been encouraging idolatry in the temple of the holy God, so why not live in a land of lies and idols and eventually be buried there? They'd be right at home. They'd be right at home. And for sure would certainly not pass the test of a prophet. If indeed he was prophesying lies and this would fit in Pashur's life, Deuteronomy 18 verses 21 and 22. And if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. So you see, in essence, the, the heart of, of Jeremiah, not being afraid of Peshur. Peshur, Peshur, you can beat me. You can put me in stocks. But one thing is for sure, I'm not, I'm not afraid of you. But you better be afraid of God. You better be afraid of God for what you have done. And the things that you have prophesied will not come to pass. 
What had they prophesied to the people? Oh, peace. Everything's going to be cool. Everything's going to be fine. Everything, you know, everything is, is, is good. You can come to the temple and you can offer your sacrifices to the God of Israel. And then afterwards you can go and offer uh, sacrifices to your own idols. Everything's cool. Nothing's going to happen to you. We're beyond all that. We're sophisticated. We're a, a sophisticated society today. The God of Israel doesn't scare us. That's what people are saying about the God who created the heavens and the earth today. We're not afraid of you anymore, God. You see all these atheists going around today and preaching all of their things against Christ and Christianity. None of them ever take a stand against Islam, only Christianity. They know that if they try to do Islam, they'll probably end up dead. But that's the nature of Islam. The nature of Christ is to preach life and life in Jesus Christ. But that's what people are saying today, going around, you know, you can do whatever you want. If you want to go to church, go to church, but you can, you know, you can go to church, you can believe in evolution, you can go to church, you can believe in this, you can go to church, believe in, in abortion. It's okay. So that's the thinking of the, of the times in which we live. But what happens to them? By the way, going back to verse 4 for just a moment. This is the first time that Jeremiah names the king of Babylon as the coming invader. First time we see, you know, he'd been prophesying, you know, that from the north this destruction is going to come. This is the first time he says it's Babylon. That comes from God. He had announced an invasion from the north, but he hadn't named the country. Now the vessel of God's discipline was identified as Babylon. And Jeremiah would mention Babylon in one way or another 200 times in his prophecy from here on. 200 times. And as for Pashur, it is possible that he was taken to Babylon during the the second deportation in 597 B.C. along with another prophet, Ezekiel, the prophet-priest. Some of the things that give us an idea about that is 2 Kings 24, verses 15 and 16. But it says he carried Jehoiakim captive to Babylon, the king's mother, the king's wives, his officers, and the mighty of the land he carried into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. All the valiant men, 7,000, and craftsmen and smiths, 1,000, all who were strong and fit for war, these the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon. Along with those was Peshur and Ezekiel. Ezekiel tells us in his own, in his own prophecy, in Ezekiel 1, verses 1 through 3, of some time already passed where he's already in Babylon. It says, Now come, it came to pass in the thirtieth year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the captives by the river Kebar, that the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, which was in the fifth year of King Jehoiakim's captivity, the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel, the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the river Kebar, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. So these are things that remind us of, of, of the time frame of, of these uh, deportations. Well, anyway, it brings us back to the prophet Jeremiah and his deepening despair as he accuses God of luring him into this position of ridicule that he had just entered or endured. So now look at verses 7 through 10. 
Now, you would consider this a prayer. But listen. He says, Oh Lord, you induced me. Induced. Persuaded. Seduced. It's kind of the understanding of this, this Hebrew word. Lord, you induced me and I was persuaded. You're stronger than I and have prevailed. Literally, you overpowered me, Lord. I'm in derision daily. In other words, I'm in the midst of ridicule, scorn toward me every day. Everyone mocks me. For when I spoke, I cried out. I shouted violence and plunder. Because the word of the Lord was made to me a reproach and a derision daily. Then I said, I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name. I said Chuck became an atheist for four hours. Jeremiah said he wouldn't mention God's name. But even before four seconds would pass, he says, But his word was in my heart, like a burning fire shut up in my bones. I was weary of holding it back, and I could not. For I heard many mocking fear on every side. What's that word? Magor misabib. Fear on every side. Play on words here. The name of Pashur. I heard many mocking, fear on every side, report, they say, and we will report it. All my acquaintances watch from my stumbling, saying, perhaps he can be induced. Then we will prevail against him and we will take our revenge on him. You know, to doubt inquisitively is not always a sin. You have a little bit of doubt and you want to kind of examine things out, you know, Some doubt is sin, of course. Most doubt is sin. But a continuous lack of faith, a continuous lack of faith and trust in the Lord is one of the worst spiritual weaknesses a person of faith can have, if you're called a person of faith. (laughs) A lack of faith. You say, oh, well, I'm a person of faith. I believe. Well, do you believe? No. Well, that's a contradiction, isn't it? When a person who is sincerely trying to follow God's will meets up with all kinds of reverses and renunciations, rejections and repudiations, resentment will come early and often. And this is what happened to Jeremiah. And we can certainly sympathize with him. You know why we can sympathize with him? Because God called him to an impossible task. You're to preach this message to these people. They're not going to listen. That's pretty much what he told them. You're going to go and give this message. You're going to tell them exactly what's going to happen. You'll even tell them that if they repent, they'll, you know, I'll bless them. But it ain't going to happen. He was given an impossible task. Go back to Jeremiah chapter 1 for just a moment. 
And look at verse 16 where it says, I will utter my judgments against them concerning all their wickedness. This is God speaking to Jeremiah. I will utter my judgments against them concerning all their wickedness because they have forsaken me, burned incense to other gods, worshipped the works of their own hands. Therefore, prepare yourself and arise and speak to them all that I command you. But then he says to him, do not be dismayed before their faces, lest I dismay you before them. For behold, I have made you this day a fortified city and an iron pillar and bronze walls against the whole land. Against the kings of Judah, against his princes, against his priests, against the people of the land. They will fight against you. Notice, God's not holding anything back from it. God's not deceiving him in any way. He says, they will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you. Folks, if you get into some kind of fight, even though you have the promise of winning, it's still going to hurt. It's still going to cause some problems and some pains and some afflictions. Don't you think? God may tell you, listen, you're going to prevail, but you are going to be in a fight. Not once did God ever tell us as Christians coming to the Lord is going to be so good and so wonderful. You're never going to be, you're never, you're never going to be hurting. You're never going to be uh, going through any problems. You're going to have everything you want, everything you need, everything. Even if you don't want, you're going to get it. I never said that. You can sing the song. You, you never promised me a rose garden. That's one of Serge's favorite songs. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> God never promised these things. He said it like it was. Jesus told the people the same thing. In this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. These are not promises that God makes and then, and then backs up on and, and, and deceives us. God is not a deceiver. We've already seen how faithful He is. How wonderful the Lord is in the things that He's promised. Because every promise He makes, He keeps. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you. Do you know what that means? It says that He's with us even when we get attacked, even when we get hurt, even when we get afflicted, and even when we are pained, He says, I'm still with you. So there's no deception here. So Jeremiah's periodic confessions and complaints had just grown more bitter. The word is bitterer if you're an English major. And this last one seems to be the harshest of all. Strangely enough, his lament was a mixture of grief and bliss, plea and anguish, praise and bewilderment. As we go on to the rest of the chapter, it's like, which Jeremiah is this? Even in one sentence or one verse, which Jeremiah is this? It's like Jeremiah's putting one mask on, another mask off, you know. This is the way we see him here. One moment he's on top of the highest mountain, the next he's in the deepest valley of Jeremiah. One thing can be said. He lived above his moods and frames of mind. And he did the will of God regardless of how he felt. Folks, take that home with you. Don't leave that here. Take that home with you. 
Because I can tell you this, I know we are people with moods and frames of mind. We all have them. But of Jeremiah, one thing can be said. He lived above his moods and frames of mind, and he did the will of God regardless of how he felt. I've used this illustration before. When, when we talk about, you know, having to deal with our children, and, and there was one uh, teaching that Jesus himself, you know, talked about, where, you know, we might on the inside feel one way, but on the outside, you know, we do another thing. And there's one person who'll say, you know, he's doing the right thing, but inside he's not. On the outside, a person's doing something that, you know, it doesn't, may not seem right, but on the inside, you know, he, he wants to do what's right. And that's, that's kind of where Jeremiah's at. He's not really like that kid, you know, that you tell him, sit down. And he doesn't want to sit down. Sit down. And he finally sits down. And he says, I'm sitting down on the outside, but on the inside, I'm, I'm standing up. That's the way sometimes we act, you know. How did Jeremiah feel, by the way? Well, he felt that the Lord had seduced him. That the Lord had seduced him. The Lord had overpowered and prevailed over him. And I want to tell you that in the Hebrew, he was using suggestive terms. Normally used for married couples. He was using terms, well, I should say that can be used uh, suggestively of married couples in a sense of being taken advantage of, folks. And listen, this is very important that you understand this. He's talking about almost as if he was, you know, married to, you know, to the Lord and being, you know, treating the Lord in, 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 in his thinking as somebody who was only taking advantage of him. In other words, he had been taken advantage of and lured into the ministry. This is what he's thinking. That he's, he's taken advantage of, lured into the ministry like a helpless maiden taking, or taken advantage of by a deceptive lover. Are you getting the picture now? You see how strongly suggestive this is. So in verse 8... Jeremiah goes on to say that he had faithfully warned the people of the coming violence and destruction only to receive insults and ridicules as his rewards. Insults and ridicule as his rewards. He's saying, you just lured me into this. I was the patsy here. You ever felt like that with God? Problem is, God doesn't do that. When you examine chapter 1 further, when you go back and examine chapter 1 further, you realize that the Lord never enticed, never deceived Jeremiah. He told him plainly that he would have a difficult time in his ministry, but if he trusted the Lord, God would make him a fortified city, a bronze wall before his enemies. What we do for the Lord, listen carefully, what we do for the Lord and for the church is important, but equally important is what our ministry does for us. 
What we do for the Lord and for the church is important. I mean, it's greatly important. But equally important is what our ministry will do for us. As we serve the Lord, our capacity and our competence for ministry should increase and enable us to do much more than we ever thought that we could. But when we do this, we do this knowing that when we apply ourselves to the things that God has called us to, we are going to face those times of trials. But we're going to let those trials help to build us, help to strengthen us. There are times when God puts us on an anvil. And he's the, he, and he's the ironsmith. And you know, you know what happens when you're put on an anvil? You're beaten. Not that he loves to beat us. It's just that the circumstances that He allows us to go through sometimes in this life are not an easy thing. But what is He making of us, you see? You can either look at an anvil as a, as a negative thing, you know, negative or positive, you know, as a bad thing, let's just put it that way. It could be a bad thing or it's a good thing. The eventual good that comes out of it is that God has made us what He wants us to be through the trial, through the temptation, and through His craftsmanship. For we know that God works all things for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. All things work together for good. We know that. Paul even states that. In that verse, Romans 8.28, where we know that God, that all things work together for good. He puts us in the fire. And heats us, he, you know, heats it up. But, but the fire hurts, yes. But what happens when He pulls us out and He starts to beat us? He starts to make something out of us. Eventually, when He finally crafts us the way He wants us to be, we become a vessel. A shiny, beautiful, strong vessel for the Lord's hand. The potter uh, and the the clay illustration that we've seen in the last few weeks, we saw it vividly when Michael Roselle was here. There's another, just another illustration, you see. Paul said it to, to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, verses 12 through 15. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has enabled me. See, the enabling comes from Him. I've said this before. God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the call. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because He counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant. With faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. What he's saying with that statement is, listen, I'm the chief of sinners, but not that I love to sin. I'm the chief of sinners because I have come to realize that God takes sinners and makes us what He wants us to be so that we can be enabled to do the things that will honor Him. 
even as sinners. So you have to understand, when he says, I'm the chief of sinners, it doesn't mean that, hey, you know, I'm going to be the first in line to be a sinner. He's been taken from the worst of the worst to be the best of the best. How? Because he surrendered his life to Jesus Christ. In Philippians 4.13, Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ. By the way, that also includes going through trials and and struggles. Going through abuses as well as abounding. So despite Jeremiah's discouragement, he knew that he could not deny or run from God's call and mission. He knew that even if he left the ministry, he would still be compelled to proclaim God's word. God's word burned in his heart like a fire that consumed his bones, his entire being. And I believe that there is, a, there is some sense that, that every believer in Jesus Christ needs to be at that place where the word of God is burning in our hearts. And it won't go away. Because it's a part of us. You see, God's word had become a part of Jeremiah. He couldn't separate himself from it. God's word is definitely a part of Pastor Chuck's life. He couldn't get away from it even for four hours. Burning his mind, burning his heart. Even though he tried to be an atheist for four hours. You understand? The word of God burns in us. It's a fire. He couldn't hide away the word of God in his heart and mind and keep it only for himself. He could never stop sharing it with others. It was, it was like this consuming fire in Jeremiah's heart and bones. Unless the word was unleashed, the prophet would perish. Unless God's word and work in us is being unleashed, we're just going to perish. What good are we if we aren't taking God's word out as God has called us to take it and use it for His glory and honor? Whether it be for great things in the world or or even in our own homes or even where we live or even where we work. It could be just that one person that needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. That one person that God puts in our life. Think of what it says in Isaiah 46 verses 9 through 11. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done. Saying my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east. A man who executes my counsel from a far country. Indeed I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I purpose that I will also do it. God's going to do his word. Whether he does it through us or not, God's going to get his word done. See, in Isaiah 55, verse 11, if you go down to Isaiah, just in a few pages over, Isaiah 55, 11, 11, So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. Whether God does that through us or not, it's going to be accomplished. God chooses to do it through us. Are we making ourselves available for God to do that through us and in us and with us and for us? This passage in Jeremiah reminds me of one great passage in Luke's gospel. 
when a certain couple of disciples are on the road to Emmaus after, after the crucifixion of Jesus. And essentially after the resurrection too. Though they don't know that. And after having met Jesus on the road to Emmaus and having him teach them from Moses and, the, and through the prophets all about himself. Luke 24, verse 32, it says, And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and and found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together saying, The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Folks, I mean, it must have been that same kind of heartburn. Because that's what it said. Did not our heart burn? It was heartburn, man. This is a good kind of heartburn. I mean, it was the same kind of heartburn that Jeremiah experienced. His heart burned. That, that, that word was fire in his heart and in his life. It said it was alive in him and that it was something that he couldn't keep quiet about. He had to speak the word of God again, just like these disciples. They ran to the eleven. Listen, God's word burns in us. I gotta tell you, if it doesn't burn in us, we're not alive. We can't play Christianity. We can't play with God's Word. It's fire, it's life, it's passion. With the matter of his call settled now, Jeremiah looked to the enemies around him. There in verse 10. He says, For I heard many mocking, Fear on every side. Report, they say, we will report it. All my acquaintances watched for my stumbling, saying, Perhaps he can be induced, they will prevail against him, and will take our revenge on him. But the Lord is with me as a mighty, awesome one. Whoa, where'd that come from? You see, there's the other mask comes on. The Lord is with me as a mighty awesome one. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble and will not prevail. They will be greatly ashamed for they will not prosper. Their everlasting confusion will never be forgotten. You see, the message that he was proclaiming was now being hurled back at him. Terror on, or fear on every side. Even his so-called friends were watching and waiting for him to slip up on a prediction to take revenge on him. But Jeremiah continued to pray and seek the face of the Lord. He experienced, I should say he expressed his trust in God. And he called on God to avenge him, verse 11. He knew that the Lord, like a mighty warrior, was protecting him. The Lord would not only cause his enemies to fall and to fail, to stumble, but God would also punish them. And how would he punish them? But with eternal shame and dishonor. With eternal shame and dishonor. Look at verse 12. But, O Lord of hosts, you who test the righteous and see the mind and heart, let me see your vengeance on them. For I have pleaded my cause before you. 
Jeremiah wanted to observe the, the humiliation of his critics. And aren't you glad that the Lord knows the hearts and minds of all men? I mean, he always knows who is right and who is wrong. God always knows. Some may try to fool us. Some may try to deceive us. But if we have the Spirit of God, and the discernment that comes to the Spirit of God, and if we have the mind of Christ, we can discern what is good and what is evil. We can discern what is right and what is wrong. But God ultimately knows every heart. So in verse 13, what does Jeremiah do? He says, sing to the Lord. Praise the Lord. Which Jeremiah is this? Sing to the Lord. Praise the Lord. For he has delivered the life of the poor from the hand of evildoers. Cursed, now notice this, cursed be the day in which I was born. Wow. Let the day not be blessed in which my mother bore me. In other words, curse my birthday, Lord. Let the man be cursed who brought news to my father, saying, A male child has been born to you. It's like the doctor coming out of the uh, the, uh, delivery room and going up to the dad. You have a son. You're cursed. (laughs) You know. Yeah. It's crazy, isn't it? It says, yeah, yeah. Brought news to my father, said, A male child has been born to you, making him very glad. And let that man be like the cities which the Lord would overthrew and do not relent. Let him cry, let him hear the cry of the morning and the shouting of the noon, because he did not kill me from the womb. <laughs> that my mother might have, have been my grave, and her, her womb always enlarged with me. Why did I come forth from the womb to see labor and sorrow? That my day should be consumed with shame. Why? Why this for us tonight? Do you know why? Very simply. Because it's a picture of us. We're the same way. One moment we could be praising God, the next moment we could be wondering why, why we're where we are. What am I doing on this planet, Lord? What's wrong with this picture? Up and down, up and down. Don't be too hard on Jeremiah. This is just so showing our hearts. You see, Jeremiah closed this lament with a call to praise the Lord in song because he had delivered the prophet from those who wanted to do evil. But his excitement and his jubilation didn't last very long. Because with his next breath, he curses his birthday, something he had... Something he actually done before, sounding very much like Job. Listen to Jeremiah 15, verse 10. Woe is me, my mother, that you have borne me, a man of strife and a man of contention to the whole earth. I have neither lent for interest, nor have men lent me uh, to me for interest. Every one of them curses me. Listen to Job, Job 3, verses 3 through 6. Job says, May the day perish on which I was born, and the night in which it was said, a male child is conceived. 
May that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor the light shine upon it. May darkness and the shadow of death claim it. May a cloud settle on it. May the blackness of the day terrify it. As for that night, my darkness sees it. Or may darkness seize it, may it not rejoice among the days of the year, may it not come into the number of months. In a sense, no different than saying, you know what, Lord, I'm an atheist now for four hours. Gee, Lord, I just wish I'd never been born. You know, there's one consideration concerning these last few verses of chapter 20. Jeremiah felt, and please listen, so it kind of makes sense for us all. Jeremiah felt that he had failed the Lord in his preaching. Please remember, what did I say earlier? God had given him an impossible task. Nevertheless, Jeremiah believed that he had failed the Lord in his preaching, for he had been unable to prevent the coming judgment. He and the people were to experience catastrophic trouble and sorrow due to God's hand of judgment. God had already said it. But think about this, in our, in our lives, in our day and time, and in our society, in our culture, we don't like to fail. We don't like to fail. We don't like to be second place. We don't like to be last place, especially. You know, if you, if you, have a, if you go play a softball game, two, two teams play a softball game, one team wins, the other loses, right? But the, the losing team, they don't say we came in second. Because you know they lost. They might as well say they came in last. Nobody likes to lose. Jeremiah had to come to the understanding that he won because he was obedient to God. Because our success is not based upon numbers. That's God's business. Our success is based upon our obedience to God. And by the way, Jeremiah was obedient. You see, the Lord has sent him to warn the people, and he was convinced that he had failed. None of the people had responded in repentance. None had turned back to the Lord. And as a result, in summary, Jeremiah was gripped by this despair. Who wouldn't be? Because he had questioned the Lord as a result of the persecution by his enemies. Because his preaching had failed to turn the people back to the Lord in repentance, which meant that he had been unable to stop the coming judgment. When we are opposed, when we are ridiculed, when we are attacked, whatever the form of persecution, our only refuge, folks, our only refuge is to the Lord himself. Our only refuge is to the Lord Himself, and the Lord Himself is our refuge. Jeremiah sought refuge in the Lord, for the Lord was his hiding place from his persecutors. But even in that refuge, think about this, even in that refuge, even when we come to church, even when we may be amongst believers and just in the love of Christ and sensing the presence of the Holy Spirit, sometimes inside we're saying, oh, woe is me. Woe is me. It's easy, folks. It's easy to try to put yourself up against somebody else. Don't do that. 
Don't compare yourself to anyone else. God has blessed you, loves you, cares for you, blessed you with things that you need, given you gifts to serve Him in and with. Take those and use them for His glory. And remember that whenever you begin to sense this burden about yourself, because it becomes a selfish thing, doesn't it? When you begin to take this burden and you begin to experience it yourself, you know what? Take it to the Lord. He's our refuge. Deuteronomy 33 verse 27 says, The eternal God is our refuge. And underneath are the everlasting arms. He will thrust out the enemy before you and and will say, Destroy whatever that enemy is. Psalm 32, verse 7. You are my hiding place, David says. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. In Psalm 46, verse 1, he says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. This is where we run. Lastly, Proverbs 30, verses 4 and 5. Proverbs 34 and 5. Who has ascended into heaven or descended? Who's gathered the wind in his fists? Who has bound the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name, if you know? Notice verse 5. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in Him. He is our refuge. He is our strength. He is our shield. He is everything that we need. As we have thanked in our study of the book of Acts, thanked Paul for being human and Peter for being human, Peter the most human. (laughs) We can thank in the Old Testament, Jeremiah, for just being human and for teaching us with his very vocal heart that even if we have a problem, we can take it to God. You see, Jeremiah wasn't taking all of these problems to somebody else and to Oprah or to Dr. Phil. He was taking them straight to God. That's where we need to take our burdens. Even in the midst of a tremendous, tremendous struggle. Jeremiah is being hated by his own people, his own family, his own friends. And his only friend right now is the best friend to ever have. And that's the Lord.
So thank the Lord that you can take your heart to Him and pour it out as it were. And maybe one moment you're just saying, Oh, I wish I had been born. But Lord, I praise you. I just praise you. And we'll work it out. Whether we go to the library or not. Or Starbucks. Or 7-Eleven. I think sometimes the coffee's better. Go to the Lord first. And always. Let's pray.